Okay, so John chapter 9. As he, as Jesus, went along, he saw a man lying from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who has sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went and washed and came home, seeing his neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging us, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed he was, others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. I need to pray. Father, we ask you now to take your word and apply it to our hearts. I pray that I will be true to the text, that I'll try not to add to it or take away from it. And when we have concluded this, there may be some seeds planted in our hearts that will bear much fruit for you. We think of the weather at the moment, Lord, and just pray that those who may be shut in will not be disturbed by it or frightened by it, and that they will have folk who will be near them to care for them. So, Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. Amen. Amen. Just a couple of things. In this whole chapter, it's quite a long chapter. We're not certainly going to look at it tonight. Um, we have the occasion when the the blind man receives his sight. And then later in the chapter, verses 8 to 34, we read how he repeats his story to the Pharisees. And then, most of all, in 35 to 41, he recognizes Jesus as his saviour. We've got to remember the end of the story to understand the beginning. The goal of this was this man would come to faith, and he does. Well, we're told at the very beginning of this that... Um, in chapter 8, there being a, a confrontation in the temple. It tells us there that um, Jesus slipped away from the temple grounds. The reason being they were going to stone him. He had made certain statements that had provoked the Pharisees and the religious people. For example, in chapter 8, 44, um, your father, the devil, the murderer from the beginning. That's not where you make friends, is it? when you declare that their father is the devil, but that's what Jesus did. These people, these religious people, were not doing the things of God at all. So he declares them to be um, children of the devil. And, and secondly, he, what really riled them was that he just said that before Abraham was, I am. And he used that tremendous Old Testament title, speaking of God, how God described himself to Moses at the burning bush, I am, I am, I was, I'm going to be. It's a fantastic study, not for now. And so two things happened in that confrontation. One, he declared who they were, children of the devil. And second, he declared who he was. That was, he was God. The reaction was they picked up stones and they were going to kill him. And because of that, it says Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple courts. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus moved away. We know in chapter 6, he also withdrew there. 
But for the exact opposite reason, there they wanted to make him king. They're going to take him and make him king by force. And Jesus slipped away there. So on two occasions, we see Jesus moving away. On one occasion, they wanted to make him king. The second occasion was they wanted to kill him. And it was all to do with his identity. The Pharisees were out to kill him because of him claiming to be the Messiah. Far be it, he wasn't just claiming it, he was the Messiah. So it looks as if Jesus was cowardly. He hid, he slipped away. We have this great, I think Jesus was the most masculine person, man that ever walked this earth. Uh, absolutely. Um, but he was hiding and he slipped away. Um, well, the reason being, it wasn't because he was fearful for himself, but he knew he had an appointment with the cross. Just as he wouldn't let them make him king in chapter 6 because he had to go to the cross, so in chapter 8 he didn't allow them to harm him because his death was not to be by stones. It was to be upon the cross. And that is our lead into this chapter, that confrontation with the Pharisees and the religious people. And it's a continuation of that that we find ourselves in at this time. So let's have a little look at the story and see where we, we move from there. Um, of course, uh, Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world. That's the title we've given the message. That's important because there were two occasions when Jesus now was going to prove he was the light of the world. First of all, he was going to make the blind man see. So he was literally giving this man light. And later on, when the man came to faith, he was giving him spiritual sight. Now, I would think, and with a great respect, I would think the vast majority of people that may be listening to this, you have natural sight. You don't need God to heal you of blindness. But there may be a number of us who may have spiritual blindness. And so Jesus is the light of the world if we need his healing. He's the light of the world if we need him to be our savior. And hopefully we'll get there a little later. So let's have a look at the text. It says, he went along and saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents? Uh, again, it's a very difficult verse, this, but we, we, again, we won't avoid it. First of all, I'd like to just say that the man's condition was clear. He was, he was a man who was blind from birth, okay? And Jesus saw him. First thing I'd like to say is that Jesus noticed him. The moment Jesus saw him, he knew his story. Very important. You know, we think nobody knows us. And, and during shutdown, you know, loneliness is something that's become more and more of a, a, a problem because contact has been so limited. But Jesus saw the man, and in seeing him, he was aware immediately of the situation. That's why you could answer the, the question of the disciples later, who sinned? Because in that moment of seeing the man, Jesus understood that. That helps me so much. Well, I think it does because it means that Jesus knows everything about me, and that's good. <laughs> but then Jesus knows everything about me, and that might not be so good. It just really depends how holy I'm feeling at this moment. So anyway, he went along and he saw the man. Now, point I'd like to make here is this. The disciples did not seem to show any compassion. They came up with a theological question. Who sinned? They called Jesus a rabbi. 
which means teacher. As you know, in Bible days, you didn't go to a school, you went to a teacher, and you would follow the teacher around rather than arriving at a classroom every day at nine o'clock. But they didn't seem to show any compassion. There was a blind man there. They didn't say, Lord, are you going to heal him? Lord, oh, this is awful. What can we do to help him? Not at all. They went straight into a sort of a theological discussion. They wanted to know who sinned. Someone had to be blamed for this. Someone had to be at fault. And somehow they felt they were the people that should ask that question. So his condition was quite simple. He was blind from birth. The question is to Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Now, I've got to say again, Rabbi was a common title for teachers. Now, this phrase, who sinned, was something that was very prevalent in, the, in, in Bible days. They, they wanted to know. They, they associated at sickness such as this with sin. So they said very simply, you know, uh, who sinned, this man or his parents? Now, when I first read this, I thought, this, this, they're not very good here, are they? Because how could he have sinned when he was blind from birth? How could he possibly be responsible for anything? Um, babies don't sin. They might cry a lot, but they don't sin when they cry. They're just probably hungry or wet. That's another story for another time. But, of course, this shows that they actually had an understanding, a, a, a false belief that it's almost a, a thought of reincarnation, that something that's done in a previous life comes over to this life. And they thought, well, what has he done? Uh, did he sin in a previous life? Well, please, let me just say this. As Christians, we don't believe in reincarnation at all. Uh, quite simple. I mean, the scripture doesn't allow it. We're told in Hebrews 9, 27, just as a man is destined to die once, and after that, face the judgment. So there's no coming back. There's no self-improvement. You know, it's not like, well, you know, in 600 times, you know, in some rotation, eventually you'll become perfect. We don't believe that. But somehow that they believe that a sort of a similar thing here. You know, this man sinned. You know, what happened? Was he in a previous life? Of course, totally unbiblical. But then there was a lot of teaching around in Jesus' day that was unbiblical. And it was not true. And the Pharisees were responsible for a great deal of it in their overemphasis upon the law. And then they said, did this man sin or did his parents? Because they thought maybe, and I've got to say this, was the child born out of wedlock? Could that have been it? Um, did the child, um, the story of Isaac, um, sorry, um, Jacob and Esau wrestling in the womb? Well, there's all sorts of thoughts. There's those things about God visiting the sins of the fathers upon other generations. So in their mind, there was a whole a swish going round here. And Jesus deals with it all very simply. He says this, neither this man or his parents sinned. Now, he wasn't saying that this man had never sinned or that the parents had never sinned. What he's saying is that this blindness was not a result of sin. Now, there are people who might believe that if you have sickness, that you must have sinned. I think Job's comforters, and we'll talk about Job in a moment, uh, there's this idea around, please, it, it's, it's just not for the children of God in that way. You know, 
Um, the, the, if you want me to answer the question who sinned, I'm almost tempted to say Adam. Because sickness is not a result of a particular sin. It's a result of the principle of sin that is here. Can't get round it. So what a man so he reads. My father died at 52. He started smoking when he was 14. As a child, I can't remember him ever not having a cigarette, either in his hand or lighting one up. So the consequences, what a man sows, he reaps. And sadly, heart disease took him far too early. So I can't blame the devil for that. I can't blame anyone. Smoking brought his life to a premature end. Now, the principle of sin is there. We started with Adam, part of the curse that we speak about. But Jesus deals with it quickly. He neither sinned, the parents didn't sin, he didn't sin. It's, it's not to do with that. There's nothing to attribute blame. In fact, his answer is probably more challenging to us than if he had passed the blame, because he says very simply, this happened so the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, this is not easy. I don't claim it to be easy in any way at all. Who sinned? Neither. Neither the man nor the parents. Now, does that mean that God made this man blind so that he could be healed? There are some who would feel that the sovereignty of God would allow such a thing to take place. Or was it that this man was blind? As many people are sick, some of the most Holy people I know have been ill. I don't, I'm not one of these people that say, you know, if you're, if you're living the right life, you'll never be sick. Well, I know that's not true because I've never had a day of work or school and I'm 70 now, but I'll tell you what, I'm not holy. I'm struggling every day like the rest of us to serve him and to do that. And so he comes and he says, not this man, but that the, uh, the works of God might be displayed in his life. So some would say, yes. God calls this man's blindness, that God might declare his glory. Others might say, and I think I might go with this, is that in encountering the man, here was an opportunity for the glory of God to be revealed in this. Study it for yourself. Don't leave it all to us. You've got a Bible. Have a look and see what you come to. But if you just look at his healing, then you might think, well, he had X number of years of blindness to have X number of years of sight. What's the trade-off? But that wasn't just the point. This man was going to very much have the, 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 the work of God displayed in his life, not just in his physical healing, but that he was going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And coming to faith in him, he would then show the glory of God in a marvelous way. I've said this before. Uh, I, I'll repeat it. Forgive me. You know, we want more miracles in our church. Of course we do, in our Elam movement. More miracles. We want more healings. We want more deliverances. Please, we, we, we want more. But while people are being saved, we are seeing miracles. When someone comes to faith in Jesus, taking their, putting their trust in him, that's the greatest miracle of all, because everyone that's healed will die eventually. 
But those who come to faith in Christ will have eternal life as a gift from God. And so when we look at this miracle, and we can't just see it in the sense of a divine healing, which it was, marvellous. But later, Jesus became the light of the world to him as his saviour, as well as his healer. Okay, um, sorry if I've laboured that a little bit. I am watching the clock, so I'll move on a little bit. So having declared is in verse 4, um, Jesus makes a statement, as long as it is day, we must work the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no man can work. And while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So in the temple, there was darkness. There was law. There was, there was just such hypocrisy. But Jesus came to shed light. And the greatest force of light is the grace of God. You know, sometimes, not maybe not now, but years ago, if people got converted, they'd sort of jokingly say, we've seen the light. Well, they might have been joking, but that's exactly what we have seen. And seeing the light isn't accepting a set of theories or doctrines. Seeing the light is coming to know who Jesus Christ is. And so this man saw the light physically with his eyes. He saw the light spiritually in his heart and acknowledged Jesus Christ. Okay. It says there that um, having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Now, you and I know from the other signs that we've seen, it was well within Jesus's power just to say sight, and he would be there. But somehow he, and I try to say this reverently, he seems to go through this little process now, which in the natural or the supernatural, wasn't necessary. Jesus didn't have to spit and make mud and put it on someone's eyes. So we, we have to ask ourselves the question, what was the point? What was the point of Jesus telling him to do this if Jesus could have healed him without it? There had to be a reason. Well, um, first of all, we, we see that it was a very simple act of this. Jesus' spit and mud upon his eyes. Uh, that in itself, um, that may have some significance. And I'm sure there are preachers out there that can go 20 minutes on that. Well, this one can't, so we'll say that. But he put this on his eyes. But then he said, go. And I wonder sometimes if this act of the mud on his eyes was a test of his obedience. Now, up to this point, he, he could not see Jesus. He only heard him. Remember, he could see him later when his eyes were healed. But at this point, he had no power of sight at all. And so Jesus approaches him. He puts this mud on his eyes, and he says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So we're having to ask ourselves the question here, well, what's that about? Well, first of all, I think the clue is in the word go. Sometimes God expects us to take a step of faith. He could have said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not. This is ridiculous. Stop taking this mud off my eyes. He could have just pulled the, 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 the mud pack off his eyes and just cursed the guy who did it. Who do you think you're doing this to? But he didn't. He submitted to this. He submitted to this. Um, 
you know, like naming the Old Testament down in the Jordan and, and bathed so many times. Sometimes we have to do something. God's expecting us to take a step of faith and to trust in him and to believe him. Well, he said to the man, go and wash in the pool of Silo, which means sent. And we know that the man did this. But I think there's also another significance in where he sent him. So acknowledging that Jesus could have done it by just saying it, he was testing the man's obedience, and he sent him to the pool of Siloam. Now, again, I think this has important significance, because in Scripture that has been called um, the temple pool. Um, I've lost where it says it in my notes. Um, the temple pool. This pool was associated with the temple. And I would like to put forward this for you to think about, that he sent him there to wash in the temple spring pool of Siloam so that when the Pharisees came, there was something of the temple involved in this man's healing. See, Jesus was confronting religion. They were temple people. The temple, the law, we're the people of God. The, the Sabbath became more important than anything. And the whole thing was religion, which spoke of death. And here's Jesus, the light of the world, saying, look, I'm going to put some mud on your eyes. I'll tell you what, son, Nip down there to that pool that's so precious, that's so holy, that's so associated with the temple and all it stood for, and wash the mud off there. I just wonder if this was just yet another challenge to the religious Pharisees in their day, because the man washed it off and was healed. Surely, if this had been so wrong, God would not have allowed that to happen. Surely the moment the water, of this holy water of the temple had gone near the man, nothing would have happened because Jesus was so out of step with God, far from it. There was never a man more in step with God than Jesus. And this temple and the spring, they submitted to Christ. His will, his purposes supersede all man's religious thoughts and ideas. Well, a little complicated, something for you to think about. Well, let's move on a little bit. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. And that was the, the, the great joy of this. He came home seeing. Now, I need to just return, if I may, to this matter of suffering. We all know of people, may I say, there is no slick answer from this preacher at least as to the, the nature of suffering. It is there, we acknowledge it. As Pentecostals, we believe in divine healing, and yet we acknowledge we have to have a theology of suffering as we have a theology of healing. But I think there's some clues to what happened with this man from the story of Job. The story of Job is marvellous. It's one of the earliest books they believe that was ever written. There's no talk of a priesthood there, no talk of the law. So Job was around the period, many believe, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob around that period. And the conversation takes place. A conversation takes place. Again, Colin was ministering this morning about the angelic creatures. And we have at the beginning of the story of Job that Satan enters the courts of heaven and makes an accusation, you know, no one 
serves you. And um, God said, well, have you forgotten Job? And the devil said this, Job only serves you because you're blessing. If you take away his blessings, he will curse you and die. So God trusted his honor and his name to Job. And all that God said to the devil was, you can't take his life. And some terrible things happened to Job. You know, he lost his family. He became ill. Many of his, some of his um, friends that would come and speak to him had this principle, you must have sinned. What did you do, Job, that this has come upon you? And Job had done nothing. He was righteous. He was walking with God. He was God's champion against Satan in this situation. God's honor, well, yes, God's honor, certainly on earth, was resting upon Job. And, you know, sometimes when we see beautiful saints, godly people suffering, the answer is we don't know why. We don't always have to come up with an answer. Job's friends try to come up with an answer. You see, it isn't for us to come up with an answer when other people suffer. It's for them to come up with the answer. They need to understand what is happening in their life. It's not for us to pontificate about, well, they must have this or God's doing this. No, no, no. Let God speak to them. We read in Job 13, 14, why would I put myself in jeopardy and take my life out of his hands? They, they wanted him to just give up, just forget God, you know, just curse him and die. And Job says those fabulous words in the middle of his suffering and his pain and his bereavement. You can't imagine what the man felt like. And yet in it all, he said, why would I put myself in jeopardy and take my life out of his hands? Friends, we're going through a tough time with the lockdown. We're not fellowshipping in church as we should, but please don't take your hand out of, take your life out of his hands. And you say, oh, Gordon, I'm going through a tough time. I, I, I will say this. You're not having a tougher time than Job. And Job found it that it was possible to stay true to God in spite of all that was happening. And that may be sometimes of the test, that in those times we can give glory to God as we stand firm for him. Another verse, verse 42 and 10. After Job had prayed for his friends, it said, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. Forgive me, verse 13 and 15. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. And the AV, which you know, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. So Job was at that place that sickness or bereavement or lockdown was not going to affect his trust and his faith and his hope in God. May we get there. May we get there. Oh, please, I'm not diminishing what you may be feeling at the moment, but let's get there. Let's get to a place where we say, I'm never going to take my hands out of his, my life out of his hands. May we always say that no matter what God does, I'm going to trust him. He is mine.
And when it was all said and done, the friends who had come and had given him no comfort at all, in fact, had given him false advice, had sought to put him down rather than build him up. It says there, after Job prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. Oh, an Old Testament verse, of course. How much can it be? How much of this can we take with us into the New Testament? I'm not sure. My task this evening is not to answer that question, but there's certainly, I believe, a link between praying for friends and praying for enemies and the prospering of God. Does that mean God will make you rich? No. But I'll tell you what, you pray for your enemies, you pray for your friends, and you'll feel you'll prosper spiritually. You may well prosper financially. You may well prosper materially. But we don't go into it for that. We go into it because it's the right thing to pray for our enemies. It's the right thing to pray for our friends, no matter what advice they gave us. And there's bound to be someone listening to me who had a friend who gave them bad advice and caused them loads of problems, a bit like Job's comforters. Pray for that person because you may well prosper in a way that you never expected as you ask God to bless them and rather than just focusing on your own blessing. Okay, so we come back to that verse. This happened so the work of God might be displayed in his life. He came home seeing, it said in verse 7. What a great climax to the story. It may be that we'll look at the rest of the story another time, but we won't journey on time. I've had plenty of time, by the way, but time tonight won't allow at the conversation between the Pharisees and the parents, the Pharisees and the man, and then the revelation of Jesus. Maybe we'll do that another time. He said, while it is yet day, we must do the work of him who sent me. I love that verse. I don't know if you've noticed it. While it is day, we... Okay, we, the Christians, we must do the work of him who sent me. In other words, Jesus is saying, God sent me, therefore now I'm sending you to do the work. Fabulous, isn't it? What a privilege that even in that verse, that's you and me if we're Christians. We are part of that. You know, while it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. The we and the me. He's done his bit. Are we doing ours? Time is limited. Pastor Colin was teaching us about the second coming recently. We don't know when he is coming. Scripture tells us that we don't know. And if you're watching anything on the TV where the person's telling you when he is coming, change over. You'll be better watching Match of the Day than watching someone that saying those things. Because it's not possible for anyone to know that. We're given signs, we're given clues, and many of us feel that those signs and clues are accelerating in fulfillment. This pandemic, who could have imagined? Can you not see that in Scripture? Some of the words of Christ, of course. But does that mean I think he's coming today or tomorrow? I don't know. But without wanting to sound flippant, he's certainly a week nearer than he was last week. Now, what work have we been doing? Have we been serving him? 
Well, there we are. We've about to conclude. You listened well. Thank you very much for that. So here we have Jesus, the light of the world, bringing light to physical eyes and light to spirit.